0: Hello everyone, I'm Ed Kemp and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast series, where we share the stories of athlete career transition to life after sport. In this episode we feature former Olympic rower Cameron Mackenzie-McCarg, who also happened to be drafted by the Western Bulldogs in 1999. After leaving the AFL system, Cameron returned to rowing in 2001 with a very simple goal, to represent Australia at an Olympic Games. He rode for Victoria and Australia for 12 years, winning multiple World Cup And world championship medals in fact he still looks fit enough to be rowing at the elite level even today cameron did reach his goal and represented australia at two olympic games beijing in 2008 and london in 2012 claiming silver in the men's four at the beijing olympics clearly a career highlight cameron was drafted 20 years ago this year and i started by asking him on reflection how quickly did his professional sporting journey pass by and did competing in two elite sporting environments help prepare him for life after sport.
1: It feels like it was a pretty short um, existence, my sporting career now. Um, at the time, I think it was just your life. So sort of, you know, you're just enjoying being an elite athlete. But um, but now, sort of in post-athlete life, it feels like that was a really sort of short period, which you almost feel like you should have enjoyed more because um, it goes pretty quickly. But then the experiences I had as an elite athlete for close on 15 years, all the character traits that you build as an athlete, you sort of then take into all the other things you do in your life. And so um, it's critical, the skills that you are learning, and it's critical to know that they're actually really transferable. Um, I think you get worried sometimes that you're learning skills that you won't be able to use later on. You use everything later on. So, um.
0: And those transferable skills, I mean, I, I look at the feedback that I've had from other athletes and sometimes you make a really good point because a lot of athletes didn't realize at the time that those skills were actually transferable. And when they're going to maybe talk to an executive in a business about how they could potentially help them, they've actually struggled to articulate where the benefits may have lied. I mean, what are the sort of things that you would say that straight off the bat could be helpful to a business or a different environment when it comes to the things that you might have learnt?
1: Well, you're just super performance focused and, um, and I think you take that for granted as an elite athlete. But I mean that's not a common trait for everyone that turns up to work every day. And so I think that performance mindset of sort of what you do within your sport and then taking that into a business world is, a, is an awesome asset. Um, and then particularly in the sport of rowing, you know, you've got the team dynamic, you've got a lot of time and commitment, you've got the Olympic cycle, which, you know, it's four years and it takes a long time to get to where you're trying to get to. So you're building towards a sort of a clear goal. There's a lot of those sort of aspects which, you know, I've quickly learned in the business world. There's exactly the same things that you're doing. Now you're applying it in a different sort of way, but they're sort of great assets in terms of what I'm leaning on now. And, and this
0: the building towards a clear goal, I mean, I was, you, with your background in being drafted in 1999 and having a couple of years at the Western Bulldogs, what were the, the differences, if you like, between that, the two elite sporting environments? One is you basically judge week to week. And the scoreboard tells you whether you won or lost. Whereas when you're on an Olympic cycle of four years and you're you're training to get to an Olympic final to win a gold medal, you've got things along the way, world championships and the like, which probably give you guidances as you're getting closer and closer. But you've still got that massive time gap between the two, what I call the major meet, which is the Olympics. And the second part of that is you've got, to your point, a whole range of different people that you're working with, same as business. Some people get on better than they with others than they do with some others, and you've got a whole range of, I suppose, what you'd call, variants or variables that go into the performance, which only you can control yourself. Which is very similar to business.
1: Yeah, um, I think when I sort of look back on my football and rowing careers, I was a really good athlete, and and the the thing with the football world is it is quite ruthless up front in terms of assessing, you know, a player's value and sort of, you know, um, whether they're going to be a 10-year sort of, you know, career player. And um, it's a bit of a pressure cooker that can spit you out quite quickly. I think I actually could have been sort of, you know, uh, carved out a bit of a career sort of with football, but my athletic skills probably sat more naturally in, you know, the sport of rowing. And so – and rowing's a all about a – a work um, sort of you know i suppose curve that you 're trying to sort of produce in a long form over sort of you know Olympic campaign, which takes time and um, and so you 've got the benefit of some of that time to you know get better sort of make mistakes you know improve a little bit further and then um, and then sort of you 've got that four year sort of goal it 's sort of amazing how four years can go pretty quickly. So, you know, there's quite sort of distinct sort of, you know, differences between the sport, but the performance aspect's still the same. I mean, like, you know, what you're doing sort of when you're turning up every day, that sort of mentality is still sort of quite consistent. And then potentially because you've sort of got every four years that you're heading towards an Olympic Games and that's the big sort of goal, there are sort of slightly different dynamics to their modern football season sort of, you know, you know, every year you're turning up and trying to make the grand final and sort of, you know, and so the preparation and sort of how you would plan a program is a little bit different. But then day-to-day as an athlete probably feels pretty similar.
0: And that day-to-day life of an athlete, a lot of athletes have told me that they have a lot of downtime. And when athletes are preparing for life after sport, often they say they're busy, they've got no time to do anything, yet they might try and three or four hours a day. In some cases, you mentioned yeah. before that you trained for eight hours a day. But how do you think you used your downtime to help you get to where you are now with respect to running your own business, developing a really interesting line of performance apparel? But what were the stepping stones and the things that you did to help you get, get to this point when you are actually in sport?
1: I was always of the mentality that you had to switch off and for me to switch off, switching off is sort of find something else to think about and do. Um, it wasn't about sort of, you know, just sitting around and sleeping or, you know, sitting out at a cafe. So, I mean, switching off was find something that was mentally stimulating in a completely different sort of space. And, I mean, I, I went and did study and then sort of worked around um, when I was sort of doing the Olympic rowing sort of preparation. Um, even when I was at the Western Bulldogs, side. I was at Melbourne uni studying, so I had a good sort of level of distraction or or different sort of parts to go to training and then sort of switching mine into something else and at the time it was that was just naturally a good fit for me because i I like to sort of um do different things but um but then I think as you sort of quickly realize when you know you can't be an athlete. For your whole life, <laughs> that some of those things that you're doing, sort of um, outside your training, start to become quite critical in, in preparing yourself for post-athlete. And if you think life. about
0: the the environments that you were in, your mindset is is what I call pretty strategic. What you've just described says to me that you're almost thinking of the end at the very start, yeah. Rather than waiting until very late in the picture to get yourself organised. I mean, were you exposed to any sort of programs or the ability to tap into either networks or be encouraged to do things outside of the sport when you're actually in them? Or were you actually doing that yourself and driving yourself rather than having a club or the Rowing Victoria or Rowing Australia provide support programs which allow you to do some of those things?
1: So there's a couple of benefits. When I started rowing, it was very much an amateur sport in terms of it's, you know, uh, there was no money in it. So you had to uh, go and find some work. So you couldn't, you couldn't, you, you couldn't, couldn't be couldn't row full fashion. time and no, not get paid. No, so which has its benefits. <laughs> it's um it would have been nice to sort of receive some cash for it, but um, but the benefits were that you had to find work and and, and because you know sort of uh, a lot of rowers sort of you know were studying, so that was sort of a, a fairly normal thing to do alongside your training. So. So you sort of naturally found a balance between your training and and some of the other aspects you are doing in your life. It's funny, like when I – and in terms of people there to help you or there was people there to help you because they had to sort of carve out the same path in terms of balancing work and and sort of high-performance sport and so there was plenty of people with experience and then I think some of the groups like the VIS and Roan Australia started to – realised that that balance thing was really important. And then also the post-athlete life, trying to, you know, get sort of athletes through with something to go on with was something critical to actually sort of uh, have longevity in the athletes because, you know, if you sort of knew that you had nothing to go on with, um, you might finish your rowing career a little bit quicker so you can then sort of get on to the rest of your life. And
0: that that ability to switch off, not necessarily – well, physically obviously, but – from a mental perspective, just to have another focus, would that? Have, do you think that helped you maybe stay in sport longer because you weren't focused 100% of the time only on rowing?
1: Yes, definitely. It's funny, when I reflect now, and this is sort of something I'd probably sort of advise some athletes, is one, make sure you are doing things that you're going to be able to go and do post-athlete life, but two, make sure you enjoy being an athlete. You know, it's such an awesome privilege to go and, you know, represent Australia at a World Championships or Olympic Games. And I think when I reflect back on the last Olympiad, I was 32 when I finished at the London Olympics. I was feeling, I think, that I, you know, I was getting to that age where I needed to make sure I was doing sort of, you know, things around work and and at times I probably got too focused on, you know, worrying about the other things that sort of sat around my athlete life as opposed to just going, I'm an athlete today, um and then, you know, obviously doing things that are gonna sort of allow you to go on with your life afterwards, but just enjoy being an athlete because it's an awesome thing to go and do. Do you think that a lot of athletes and obviously I feel is an interesting one purely
0: because you've been in that environment as well and, you know, it's a pressure cooker almost twenty four seven for three sixty five days a year, certainly in Victoria. Do you think athletes a lot of people that you've dealt with been involved with actually enjoy being an athlete, or do you, because the, the sort of the feeling that I get is, is it it almost becomes a job. Yeah. And sometimes you know we have shit days at work, yeah. and sometimes you know if if there's more of those days than there are good ones, you probably got to think
1: about what you're doing. I mean, there's aspects I reckon it's got harder to just enjoy being an athlete because you know the reason you started in the sport was probably because you were sort of you know a six or seven year old kid loved football or loved sort of, you know, sport and you wanted to have a crack at doing this and, and you loved just the, the sport, you know, that was why it got you in and then you got good at it. I think sort of um, these days, you know, a lot of the stuff that sits around being an athlete is non-athlete related. Like, you know, there's all the sort of, you know, social media sort of pressure, there's all the sort of media that sort of, you know, and this... You know, this is not in the rowing world. As, as It's really sort of – it's probably more in the uh, professional AFL football codes and all that. But, I mean, I can sort of see even at the Olympic Games that in 2008, which was my first Olympics and that was at Beijing, you couldn't get Facebook. So it was in China and you couldn't access Facebook. And then a lot of the social media sort of channels – and there wasn't Instagram. There wasn't sort of – and so when I reflect back, I sort of go – It was awesome. Like, you know, you had no distractions and you turned up and you you were sending emails (laughs) and that was sort of your interaction with the outside world. Then when I went and rode at the London Olympics, you could see and that was the first Olympics where there was, you know, this pressure on, you know, sort of the outside world that was still around you for the two weeks of the Olympic Games. And I observed athletes who were there to build a profile about what they were doing over that two weeks. Not to turn up and, you know, just hyper-focused on their performance, but they were there to – they were aware that this was a four-year sort of build-up and this two two weeks was their time to shine. And I'm like, go and get a bloody performance and then nail that and then you can shine for the rest of your life if you get that right. But, but I mean, this is the world we live in.
0: Pressure is an interesting thing for athletes because I think everybody, every athlete seems to deal with pressure a little bit differently and I th- – Talk about pressure as internal and external. And everyone that I've ever spoken to said the internal pressure that I put on myself is way bigger than what anybody, what any coach, what any media commentator could possibly put on me. I mean, how did you deal with pressure? Because you're dealing in a, okay, call it the four-year Olympic cycle. So when you are on the start line in, in Beijing in 2008, when you're going and you won the silver medal, I mean, that must be unbelievably internal pressure. You know that we've come this far. We've only got six and a half minutes to actually row the perfect race. I mean, that must be incredible pressure to bear and cope with.
1: Yeah. I mean, like the, that moment sitting on the Olympic sort of, you know, start line. Are you absolutely just – Well, no. I mean, this is what was strange about Beijing. And, and, I mean, and then I sort of reflect on pressure and pressure's sort of outcome of preparation and expectations – and I think sort of uh, the start line in Beijing was really sort of bizarre. We felt like we were super prepared and we knew what we were going to do in the race. And the questions that we needed to answer about sort of our performance, we felt like we were sort of really well drilled about, you know, exactly what we were about to do. And so I actually felt one of the calmest I've ever sort of felt on the start line of Beijing, which was awesome because, you know, it is a moment which I sort of, you know, had anticipate would yeah, it would be a really difficult moment to hold your nerves, and I remember feeling really calm and in control about what I was going to do. Conversely, London felt like our preparation wasn't uh, as good, or it certainly wasn't as good as what Beijing was, and um, and so I was nervous on the start line of London Olympics. Because
0: and so does that mean that your nervousness made you more nervous from the point of view of performance? Going, crikey, have we actually ticked every box before we yeah before we start?
1: Yeah, I reckon. I mean, like you know, your nerves are good to a level, and then they start to sort of distract. And you know, and I think sort of good nerves are all about sort of just having the right sort of energy at that time to go and then sort of tip into you know, see your performance. And then when it sort of tips over, it sort of it starts to become a distraction, and and you start to forget potentially the things that you should be focusing on, and and you start to probably be more aware of. Things that are less sort of outside the race plan, or sort of you know, and and that that's obviously not ideal for what you're trying to do. And now you're trying to, you sort of you're an elite athlete and you've been training for this, but um, you're still human, and so you sit on the start line. And I remember thinking in London, um, I think the reason I was nervous was that. I was less sure about what we were going to do in that race than what I was in Beijing because Beijing, we had a really good lead-up. The crew's performances were really solid all the way through where uh, the London campaign out, we'd have a really good race and then we'd have a really average race. And so you're sitting there in the Olympic final going, this better be a good race, Um, but you don't have 100% confidence in it.
0: And that pressure, as you're sort of winding down your career, and I'm not quite sure, I mean, can you explain maybe to start with, when you realised that London was going to be your last campaign, is that a combination of mental and physical fatigue, of just being super focused on that sort of four-year cycle for, I'm guessing, eight to 12 years, and then you, did you just simply go, I'm done? Or did was there something that triggered you to say, well, I'm going to stop doing this and get on with the rest of my life? Uh,
1: I mean, there's a combination. I think when you hit your 30s, there's a combination of pressures of life that you start to sort of you start to feel like you want to do some other things as you know and have a family and um, do some other career sort of things in your life so you've got that in the back of your mind i think the thing that sort of when i think back to the london campaign i sort of go i was a better athlete i was more experienced and you know being an athlete sort of at the olympic games if you can really control your performance and have all the controls necessary to go and you know sort of win a medal, then that's an awesome experience. But I felt like at the end of the London campaign that I'd done a really good four years of, you know, block in terms of all the sort of training and sort of all the physical side of what we did. But then there was still some control things about, you know, our program preparation that we did in the lead up to London, which I would have fundamentally changed had I had more control. And then you sort of go, well, it's four years do you want to go through another four-year cycle where you might have some really solid performances and then um, in the Olympic year um, not sort of feel like you got full sense of control of your performance? And and I think that – I mean, and then I'd, I'd been an elite athlete for 15 years and I felt like I'd lived and enjoyed and had a journey, which was, you know, when I think back to being a kid and watching your first AFL grand final or sort of Olympic Games – to do the 15 years that i sort of got to do, that was my dream. And so, you know, um, I would have loved to have, you know, won more medals and sort of done, you know, a few more things. But um, I certainly felt like I extracted all the sort of enjoyment of an athlete journey out of those 15 years. And then
0: if you if you take that, you finish rowing and then you've got university qualifications behind you, you've already been working. So was, was it simple for you just to clip from being an elite athlete to – being a member of the workforce, or did that take some time for you to adjust the fact that you were no longer finishing work at 3 o'clock and going and training for four hours or whatever you might have been doing uh. as part of that whole process? Because I the feedback that I've got from many athletes is that the adjustment, regardless of how well they're prepared, has been quite
1: challenging. Oh, it is. I mean, and, and I think anyone that says that it was easy – is an exception to the rule or line because um, it's it's bloody hard. And I mean, t- tell me some of the some of the things that you found hard to adjust to Ken. I just think sort of you know there's a there's a world that you've been a part of and and you've got to a level where you're very good at what you do. Um, you get recognised. You can track your performance really sort of you know clearly. So I mean that was a sort of big thing in rowing is that you you really understood your performance every day and what you're sort of producing and. And you know you're doing something you sort of love with. And you're training with your mates every day, and it's just it's an awesome sort of life. And then you step into a world where um, a lot of those sort of skill sets you're starting from scratch in terms of your experience, and you'll get a little bit of recognition for being an athlete. But then the next day you rock up to work, and the conversation's change and no one really cares that you went to sort of you know the Olympics, and you got to get to work and and do some of the things that um, you need to do on your desk. And and, and does that
0: mean that this issue about performance and the fact that in rowing you're being, you're being tracked every day and that kind of transition to understand that, well, some of the things that you do in, a, you know, in an office or at a business, it might take six months, 12 months, four years to actually get a reward, probably very similar to rowing. I mean, whilst you're, you, you, you're, you know, you're competing in World Cups and World Championships, Olympics is the goal. Yeah. And so yeah. similar with respect to changing the culture of a business or launching a new product, you know, you might launch the product, but it might take 6, 12, 18, 12, 24 months for the product to actually gain traction yeah. and, and the things that you're doing to gain traction. Did you find that quite challenging?
1: Yeah, and more so probably because in rowing um, and in that sort of athlete life, you've probably got sort of uh, more obvious measurements on your day-to-day performance. So there's there's clear indicators that you can – go and sort of see what you're doing, you know, is this better than what you did last year or the year before? And so that's sort of really clear and obvious to you. Whereas when you transition to that work sort of life, you'll do a lot of stuff in your day where you have no idea whether this is, you know, on target. You have no idea whether you're really adding value to sort of an end goal somewhere, but but you're busy. (laughs) And so I suppose that understanding of exactly what you're doing and then sort of what performance you're actually doing at that time and if it's heading to the right places you know you don't have the landmarks that you had in sports so um so that's sort of a hard adjustment to go through I think and do you think and I
0: mean I see it every day you know look everyone's very very busy in the workplace that I'm at and sometimes I think you know I'm busy am I busy actually making progress here am I just busy shuffling papers and and maybe doing things that aren't that productive. I mean, what what are the sorts of things that you could take out of your sport experiences that might, you know, translate really easily to a performance kind of culture in a business? A classic example, I had a conversation with a, a colleague of mine last week who runs a, a not for profit medical research organization and trying to instill a performance culture in. A not-for-profit can, you know, can be quite challenging yeah. because yeah. often a lot of people who are there are, are volunteers. Um, they're giving up their time, and so there's not maybe necessarily the what I call the, the pressure to perform and the pressure to get things done because there's not that sort of urgency, even though the cause is very, very urgent. But the mindset of people doesn't necessarily go like that when it comes to work.
1: Yeah. It's, um, I mean, because, you know, usually you're pretty clear ahead of a training session of what the training session's there to do. You, you might have some numbers that you're trying to hit and so the goal or the outcome of the training session is really quite clear. Um, and it's interesting. So we had a conversation with our team this week about uh, meetings and, you know, meetings can feel good and you can have a lot of good sort of, you know, conversation. But we had a sort of conversation around Uh, outcome so every meeting has to have an outcome and you have to turn up to the meeting if you're calling the meeting you have to say what the outcome is that you're trying to achieve out of this meeting and so you know those kind of little things which are probably sort of you know borrowed from some of the thinking of being an athlete and going if you're you know sort of organizing this half an hour an hour sort of you know slot of time What are you trying to achieve out of it and what's sort of, you know, where's the performance sort of, you know, at the end of it so that we know that it was actually worthwhile and valuable and and it's heading somewhere that we're trying to sort of target. So um, I think sort of that kind of aspect of – and sometimes they're obvious things and sometimes they're more subtle in terms of the skill sets you'll draw on. But but getting people sort of aligned with um, that mentality that – not just being busy but actually sort of you know having a purpose is um, is sort of important and, and as an athlete it's sort of almost intrinsic to sort of you know what you do and you know it's, it's ingrained because you've got quite specific sort of programming around where you're trying to head but um, but in the Business world, you know, it's not as clear and obvious sometimes, and so you need to do things that sort of, you know, make it uh, more sort of, you know, I suppose um, performance focused in terms of what you're trying to do. Now, here's a a
0: sort of slightly off-topic question here: Have you managed to stop people taking mobile phones to meetings, and have you have you managed to stop people answering mobile phones or responding to emails and text messages when they're in meetings? Because if you if you have I think you need to send a memo to just about every other business around the world.
1: No. I mean, and, and this is and, – and, you know, before you start getting stuck into everyone else, you should sort of reflect on your own. And uh, I know I'm sort I'm of – I'm terrible at it. Yeah, well, <laughs> this is the thing, isn't it? And, I mean, this is sort of – it's interesting sort of transitioning to, you know, building a business and running a business. And, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you take from an athlete into, you know, what, what I'm doing now. but But there's other stuff that – you know, we've got sort of you know, so many hundreds of things that sort of pop up every day that we've got to try to be across or, you know, sort of um, put to aside and sort of focus on later or – but, I mean, I found that really challenging in terms of just
0: the prior- actually prioritising what's important and what's critical yeah. and what can be put aside. My, my late mother-in-law said to me once I could have worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I could never have got everything done, so I didn't try. I just focused on the issues that I knew were absolutely critical and needed to be done, and the rest would just have to wait.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I suppose as an athlete, you sort of go, well, like I should be good at focusing on specific goals, and and you are – but as an athlete and in a sport, those goals are, as I was saying, far more obvious and where you're trying to get to is far more obvious. And but you can so, also track them. And you can track your them. Your progress as well. And you have less sort of you know outside things coming into your environment that are going to sort of you know throw you off course. Where I think in the business world, I mean, you can sort of have this clear idea as to what you're trying to do on that day or in that month and then something comes from left field where for the next week you might have to get the team around just focusing on purely that and – and that sort of adaptability and distraction and how you handle that is probably something I've had to sort of, you know, learn and um, and sort of get a lot better at because, you know, I'm good at focusing and I'm good at sort of when I'm really sort of targeted on something. Um, what I've had to learn to do is, you know, be more adaptable about sort of things that are outside of your control and then how you deal with it.
0: And do you, do you have mentors and do you use people that, that you've maybe met through sport in business that can actually help you kind of, you've got to make your own call at the end of the day, but have you used mentors over the course of your life that have helped you to get where you are now?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like mentors have come in a whole lot of different shapes and sizes and where they come from and, you know, what, the, what value they add to you, I think. Um the thing I'll probably learn is that, you know, to find the oracle is impossible. <laughs> so to find that one person that's sort of, you know, you're going to answer all those things that you've got in your head. Well, and that's why of, that's why these self help books, mate, they're, they're on the bookshelves <laughs> and there's a new one right. every other day. But I mean, the thing, the thing I love talking to people who have done, you know, and even if they feel like they're really different things that they've sort of done, the value of sort of, you know, some of the lessons that they've gone through is something that you can consistently take into what you do Um, and you often just look at people that are really good at what they do Um, and that might be in sport or it might be in business conversations with those kind of people you'll learn you know sort of two three four things out of that conversation alone that you'll be able to sort of apply and um, and so mentors I suppose I haven't got a consistent mentor but I talk to a lot of amazing cool people that do awesome you know things at the top of their game and i love you know those conversations because you sort of you're always learning from those people as to how to do things better
0: we'll get on to 776 bc for a second sports apparel company started by yourself and your wife can you explain why you came to doing this or how you came about doing this and just briefly the things that you've taken out of your sporting experiences which are clearly Very, very, very transferable and relevant to what you're doing.
1: Yeah, so we, um, I think I had a natural sort of energy to try to start my own business. Um,
0: You're quite a curious person, aren't you?
1: Curious person and even, you know, I suppose reflecting on that control element. I love being in control of your performance then, sort of running your own business and and building something from the ground up was really attractive. Completely naive to the work that went, had to go into it, but, um, but you needed to be naive to start a business and... And then, in terms of sports apparel, like I've obviously worn a lot of sports apparel, a lot of Lycra over 15 years, and um, saw that there was some opportunities to probably work with athletes um, more closely in, in some of the sports, and and look at the sort of real performance details, sort of aspects of of garments and and, and products that are going to help them improve their performance. We also looked at the category and and sort of saw that there was probably a really good category to you know, step into and uh, there's a lot of energy around health and well-being. Everyone was starting to look at exercising sort of more regularly and and that went from the you know obviously the athlete to the everyday sort of person and and um, so when we first explored the idea of this you know business in this space. Um, the categories changed significantly. Like, you know, there's a lot more energy and players in this sort of space that we... Still... So you mentioned
0: control and you mentioned outcomes before. As you've gone on your journey with 776 BC and you're the CEO co-founder, how have you dealt with what I call the, the delegation and actually letting go of some of the control in certain aspects of the business to ensure that you can focus on the strategy, which to my mind is, is directly transferable and relatable with respect to a four-year Olympic campaign? You don't have to try and, you know, jump on the ergo for the first time after a year off and expect to do your best possible performance, but it's incremental. So how have you, you sort of looked at that and maybe drawn on some of your sporting experiences to allow other people to get on with things that whilst you focus on maybe the bigger picture or, or, or a specific element of, of the business?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, when you start off, you're doing everything. Um, I mean, and so you naturally sort of fall into, not a trap, but like you're doing everything. So then when new people come in, you have a tendency to probably, you know, sort of try to do everything that they're supposed to be doing. Um, Like I I think sort of naturally, I'm quite comfortable in getting good people in and and allowing them to run parts of the business. Um, And so... You know, like sport, sort of. You know, it's people are the most critical part of sort of what you're trying to put together, and so trying to get good people into your business is is hard, and and then trying to get them aligned and sort of, you know, um, really sort of driven to sort of, you know, go after the same things that you've built the business around. You know, that's that's sort of a challenge, and but it's really cool when you get it right. And I mean, this it's amazing just I'm Ladies and
0: gentlemen, for you, those listening out there, I'm actually circling comments that Cameron is making about various issues to do with um, his life in sport and business. A couple of ones I've circled, clarity, control, people and alignment. And if you look at that, every business needs to have you know, a clarity of purpose. Uh, there needs to be some control around exactly what people are doing and when they're doing it. The people side of things is, to my mind, the whole issue around how numbers are produced. You can have a great quarter, a great year, a great decade, but the numbers aren't produced by a fluke. They're produced by really great people that have clarity, control, and are all aligned. So, I mean, it's actually a really interesting point that you make, Cameron, because all of these things that you've just mentioned are completely transferable across any business and pretty much every sport you could think of.
1: Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I mean, and that's the thing that sort of, I think athletes should draw some comfort out of is that what you train for for fifteen years. Um, those things that you're training on, uh, they sort of transfer quite quickly, and and they're really valuable assets to a lot of businesses and a lot of people out there trying to get good people on board. Um, and so, um, I mean, and it's interesting. Like we started the business and had this mentality that uh, we're just we're going to be very athlete centric. And we're going to employ a lot of athletes and and that's sort of going to be the core of our sort of workforce. The thing that I've sort of discovered is that um, you don't have to just employ athletes. There's a lot of, you know, great people out there that – and athletes, you know, some athletes are really good at sort of transferring that sort of skill set into sort of the business life and then – yeah you know they're they're normal people too, and others sort of you know uh you know get distracted by you know other sort of things that aren't as easy to sort of fit into what we're trying to do within this sort of business but um but yeah, it's the people game and sort of and then building that alignment and I've seen it when it doesn't quite sort of you know go sort of uh, it's not quite a neat fit, and then I've seen it when it works really well, and uh, it's like a sort of a rowing team. It's awesome when it starts to really line up, and you've got great people with really good skill sets, and and skill sets that you're sort of you know nowhere near sort of able to achieve in what they're doing in their space, Um, but as part of the whole team, it's just um, it's really cool when you start to see those pieces come together.
0: In your Career to date with 776 BC, have you ever had to let someone go? Yeah. And tell me about whether you use some of the sporting experiences to maybe help sort of inform you as to how you might deal with that. Because I'm assuming that you've been involved in crews where either you've been cut or you've seen teammates being cut. AFL lists are, you know, from one year to the next, I think they're turned over by 10 or 12%. So there's a lot of people. Every year in elite sport, which are who are potentially forced into retirement, not because they choose to, but because there's not another gig for them somewhere else. So, how's that sort of maybe informed the way that you might go about letting someone go who might not necessarily be exactly the people or the person you're looking for?
1: I think um, I mean, it's first and foremost, it's tough. (laughs) It's like it's not enjoyable when you sort of um, get to that stage where you you're sort of fairly clear that. Uh, you're not sort of aligned and and then you've got to be quite objective. The other thing too I think that's important is you've got to try to sort of look um, beyond the emotional sort of part of, you know, what you've got to, you know, navigate through in that sort of process um, to, you know, just step beyond and, and sort of think about what the business needs and uh, and then sort of almost look six, 12 months, you know, time and sort of What you're trying to sort of really target to do as a team and and is there a sort of good fit and and one of the things i look at too is that if you get the culture right and you get the real vision right not everyone's gonna you know want to be a part of that and it's important almost that um if you have that really strong i think you'll see people who come in for a period of time and probably leave just because it's not the perfect fit that they sort of, you know, really align to. And look, it's so- funny you say that because I reckon a lot of that,
0: especially when a business is quite young, it's it's almost self-selecting. People mm. will come into the business for a period of time and then realise, this ain't for me, and they'll actually make the decision for you and you don't necessarily have to go through the process of, of exiting them out of the business. Um, and, I mean, this business, how old is 776 BC now? It's almost five years now. And yeah. if you look at where you are now compared to, to when you started, do you think you're about where you're expected to be? Are you way, way in front or you probably not quite where you'd like to be based on where you were five years ago?
1: Uh, It's a tough question to answer. It's a tough question to answer because you're naturally really sort of optimistic about where you're trying to sort of get to. Um, Great businesses take a long time to build. I I think there's this falsehood these days. You know, there's this um, sort of energy around sort of entrepreneurship and building businesses and... Great businesses take time to build.
0: A great mate of mine, um, lead guitarist in Powderfinger. They were mucking around, you know, in garage bands and doing all sorts of other things for a long time before they got picked up and became, you know, inverted commas, superstars.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, look, you read about sort of businesses that, you know, the overnight success that goes from nothing to, and, I mean, that's just, you know, the hype of the media sort of making those sort of, you know, as a real standout, but... I mean, the thing I think I learn out of the Olympic cycle have been four years and, you know, really to perform in Olympic games, you probably need to do two Olympic cycles. And I sort of go, that's that probably feels right to when we should feel like we're really sort of hitting our straps in this business. It's funny, I, I remember in 2012, I got to meet Herb Elliott and um I had lunch with him at um, the AS Training Centre over in Italy. and. It was really cool just sort of talking to him about his life and um and he everyone sort of says that he finished his athletic career early and um and he sort of said to me that he always felt like eight to ten years was a good amount of time to get into something get really good at it, and then that was a good time to sort of you know leave and and then have a crack at something else, and that's not to say um leaving 776 instead sort of, you know, I've got an 8 to 10-year time horizon. But um, I thought it was an interesting sort of perspective of uh, the time it takes to get into something, get really good at it and uh, and be at the top of your game. And he probably I – well, mean, he did. He left at the top of his game. And um, and so, you know, I think sort of we're definitely ahead – what's interesting for us in this business, the blue sky sort of, you know um, – places and spaces that we're sort of trying to get to looks 10 times more attractive now than what it did when we sort of first started. So what we can do with the business and where we're trying to take it now is 10 times more exciting than where we sort of first initially thought. Um, You know, uh, when you're running a business, you're running a different cadence to the sort of outside world and you're always wanting things to happen faster. Um, But I think I'm trying to learn about that a patience game of building a great business. And to build great things, you need time and you need to sort of, you know, um, you need it to sort of build in the right kind of way.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that because, I mean, in the, in the private wealth management business that I'm in, we talk about the long game and the fact that you actually have to be patient, do the right things, build great relationships which become partnerships which over time will reward you with the success that you need in that part of, of what you're doing from a work point of view. Let's switch gears a bit and talk a bit about family and friends and their influences on you. Not so much as you were growing through your sporting career, but maybe the insights and the, the assistance they may have given you as you were transitioning. I don't like calling it transitioning from, I much prefer to say transitioning to. That's a bit of a play on words, but you know, transitioning to the next phase of your life to my mind, is a it's a looking forward mindset as opposed to from, which is, to my mind, looking back. I mean, what are some of the things that maybe your family and friends have helped you with as you've transitioned to life after sport?
1: Well, I think, I mean, sort of the enjoyment sort of part of spending more time with them. Um, and, you know, if they weren't enjoyable to spend time with, then you might not <laughs> enjoy post-athlete life as much. But, I mean, certainly – you know, having the opportunity to turn up to more of the occasions that you celebrate together and just to hang out um, is something that as an athlete, you know, you didn't get that luxury to do. Uh, And so that's been really sort of, you know, enjoyable just to have. I missed in one year, I missed my wife's 30th, my mum's 60th and my grandma's 90th birthdays because I was off competing or racing somewhere. And, And I sort of think back to some of the things I've missed along the years, and I sort of go, um, now it's nice to be able to turn up to all those things. And and
0: that and you know, it's interesting. The you hear plenty of people out there, you know, just what I call us civilians, you know, and you hear professional athletes say, ah, you know, I had to, I sacrificed so much, but it's actually real, isn't it? The sacrifice that you do make, especially from a family point of view, because family. Uh, is the most important thing in your world, and you know, last Sunday I was down in Hobart. My grandma turned a hundred, which was just amazing, and to have all of the family around her and my children, all of her great grandkids, was just something you know you can't, you know, it happens once in a lifetime. And I mean, those sorts of things, I imagine, would have been pretty annoying and pretty tough at times.
1: It's funny, I reckon, as an athlete, like uh, your family and friends probably sacrifice a bit, and and you don't feel like you're probably sacrificing because what you're getting to do is really cool. And yes, you're you're missing out on stuff, but it's, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just an awesome sort of, you know, privilege to do the things that you do. Um, But I think the family and friends sacrifice quite a bit in terms of supporting you because, you know, you're doing something that is inherently quite selfish probably in some sort of parts of what you do. Um, and, you know, they've got to, you know, sort of be there supporting you on all these sort of different things that you're sort of, you know, off training and you're missing out on this and and they've got to continue on sort of, you know, and and be okay with it. Um, And so, I mean, look, yeah, like I think sort of after a while um, you sort of get used to missing out on stuff and it becomes less of an issue uh, in terms of the sort of mental, emotional side of it. But but I often now reflect back and I go, well, it's probably sort of harder on, you know, the people that are around you um, to support you because, sort of uh, you know, they adjust their lives to, you know, to be there as a support for you.
0: And with that support that a family unit gives you, what about the support that maybe the, you know, your cohort of fellow athletes, whether it be in the AFL system, whether it be rowing. I mean, were there times when you could speak openly to colleagues about uh, your concerns about a particular issue to do with a crew or about the fact that you were thinking about what's happening next? And certainly from the, the transition to life after sport, in your experience, were were people that you were involved with focused on on that part of their lives, even though they were still very well engaged in the elite sporting environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, I think that's – you're all going through the same thing um, in terms of, you know, the same challenges and and even from sort of the outside of, you know, um, some people look like they're coping brilliantly and, you know, they've got all this set up and they've got a new job or whatever it might be. You go have a catch-up with them and it, you're having the same conversations about it being a real struggle. And so I think sort of first and foremost – um, just being able to talk about it and talk about talk about it to people you can relate to because um, it's very hard to have the same conversation to someone, sort of, you know, a colleague at work. I have no idea, sort of, in terms of that transition. Um, they might sort of understand, you know, it's it's quite a significant change, but um, being able to talk to the, you know, athletes going through the same thing, I think is it's just one of those key pieces that you should just try to, get yourself outside of the comfort zone and just consistently do that because, again, it might be a great support for you or you'll learn a few things, but it, it'll definitely probably be a great support to the person on the other side of the table. And, and do you
0: think that sports do the transition piece well? I mean, in your experience? I mean, because I look at the way that um, a lot of sports and, and sporting codes have, you know, there's been a massive uptick in uh the prevalence of mental health issues, and then, then the if you like the reactive side of actually putting plans in place to provide support, um, life after sport. If you look at the journey I've been on the last twenty or twenty five years, which goes back to when a friend of mine was cut from an AFL list and they essentially just left him on the street back in about nineteen ninety four or ninety five, to now when there is, you know, a very uh, highly engaged AFL Players Association. You know, you've got the Australian Cricketers Association. You've got Rugby League, Rugby Union, and all the other professional sporting bodies that have the ability to fund these types of programs. But do you think they're actually making a difference? And do you think that they are really getting the outcomes that that athletes and the codes would want?
1: Oh, I think it's at the starting point. I mean, the, the, the great thing is is that uh, there's there's a huge amount of awareness about it now. So that transition sort of period, um, I don't think anyone is now sort of going, oh, you'll be right, just figure it out. Um, And so the awareness has changed completely. But then you're sort of still at the starting point in terms of how effective that is because I think everyone on both sides is still trying to figure out what's the most effective way to transition someone who's been – super focused and high-performing in this space and into another space. It's And, I mean, it's a case-by-case. Case, I know. mean, it's, it's
0: a personal thing. I mean, you were educated at a private school um, and you've got that spread of private school education all the way down to, uh, to maybe some individuals that haven't had that privilege and haven't had that opportunity and they may have left school, you know, at 14 or 15 uh, and a thrust into that world which they're really good at and maybe they think they're that's the only thing they're ever good at, and they've got to put all of their time and energy and effort into that that pursuit. And then, you know, to your point, the fifteen years went pretty quickly, and then, holy moly, you've got to spend the rest of your life. You know, you you gonna have probably fifty years on the earth once you finish sport, unless you're, you know, you can play it into your into your well into your into your mid mid life. So that, to my mind, is the most critical issue that we'll ever deal with with transition: is that ability to Every person, no matter what their backgrounds are, focusing on what happens when they finish early as opposed to waiting for the excuse my French, the old shit moment when it's done and they've got they've got no idea what they're gonna do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's um and that's the thing, that moment is still gonna be there, but then it's about, you know, the options of, okay, I can talk to this person or having some answers as to what's the next step. Because often that I think that's sort of almost the hardest thing is and I know it's changed significantly from when I was an athlete. Um, and you finishing. still look, one, look like one, by the way. Yeah, but well, don't put me on the rowing machine because you'll find out. that <laughs> I'm a fair, way, a fair way off where I used to be. But, I mean, like, you know, it has changed even in the last sort of six years when I sort of finished in terms of – um the conversation that was had to a retiring athlete we had no conversation and and what's interesting we didn't even get recognized that we were valuable to the sport for the you know 12 years that we sort of um uh put into sort of representing australia you know on the team and it was like you retired okay um and that was it there was no and these days You know, the recognition, but then a conversation and then sort of, you know, some answers about, you know, have a, you know, um, get in contact with this person or sort of have you thought about that? At least there's some next steps that are in front of people these days, which I think is that's just the starting point, isn't it?
0: Do you think that if you had gone in either of the sporting environments you were in when you were competing, maybe halfway through your career and said, look, I'm thinking about what I want to do post sport do you think that would have been a positive or a negative because I mean you see you hear all the time of you know coaches and you know elite elite sporting managers and the like their focus is really on winning and nothing nothing should ever get in the way of winning and if it means that the athlete is not focused 100% on winning maybe they shouldn't be there and that potentially can be a an inhibitor to someone going up and saying look I want to focus on or spend a day a week doing a part-time job.
1: and I mean, I think this is the – it's always going to be the challenge of high-performance sport, isn't it? Is but is, that-
0: isn't it crazy though because yourself mentioned earlier that having a focus outside of your sport helped you perform better. There's plenty of research out there and one of my, your previous or fellow interviewees, uh, David Parkin, has been big on this for 45, 50 years. Get the balance right inside and outside of your sport and you'll actually get better outcomes on the field.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, like there's, there's so much knowledge and evidence about that sort of balance, you know, producing longer sort of term athletes in the sport. So, and if you've got a great asset and, you know, athletes are all about sort of, you know, you're investing in them and, you know, and then if you're able to produce a five-year athlete, 10-year athlete, you know, compete at four Olympic Games, I mean, that's an awesome sort of um, uh, athlete to carry through for that sort of amount of time. Um, And then – so there's considerations that need to sort of sit around that. I think that the challenging thing for the sports is – and sort of to your early point about, you know, a lot of the people in sport and high-performance sport about getting a result and they should be. I mean, that's that's why they're employed to go and get, you know, medals and results. And so them having the headspace to then sort of consider about an athlete's outside career – it's where the sports need to sort of bring in these other roles that are looking after those parts. And
0: they're certainly doing that now. I mean, most elite sporting environments, certainly the bigger codes have got play development managers across all the different, you know, the clubs and even at the at the headline, um, at the code level, they've, they've got people that are involved in that as
1: well. I think, um, I mean, out of all the years that I sort of trained, competed as an athlete, the Victorian Institute of Sport were probably about the best at it in terms of understanding that they were really high performance and so it was really sort of focused on the athlete's performance but you really felt like that that was at the center of what you're trying to do and then around that there was a lot of um, people and sort of services that sort of were there to assist you to do some of the other parts of your life and um, and I felt like they did a sort of a great job in understanding that model and being probably sort of a real leader in that space. So, Do you think that
0: those types of roles, call it player development or athlete development managers, what sort of benefit would it have actually a former athlete doing those types of roles?
1: Yeah, I I mean it's – because you need to be able to relate to – I think that's – it's a key piece. Whether they're sort of the person that you're going to, but having a former athlete – um, understand the challenges and sort of, you know, the transition sort of pressure of, you know, what you're going through um, I think that sort of is really critical because then they can relate to, you know, what you are trying to sort of step through and and then guide you where someone where they're sort of, you know, it might be um, just their sort of job about sort of instructing you in what sort of course or what sort of, you know, job you should target um, they're probably not sort of tuned into the the athlete mindset of, you know, um, this is a big deal for me. So, yeah.
0: We're going to wrap things up fairly shortly. You've given us way too much time. I'm sure you've got plenty of other things to do with 776 BC. But two final things. The first one is do you think you're a better person because of the experiences you've had
1: in athletics oh, and, and in elite sport? Oh, complete. I mean, it's made who I am. So I hope. It- <laughs> um, I mean, like, you know, I, I just look at all the sort of things that I'd do in my life now um and I owe to you know sort of the sports sort of side of you know and the programs that I was in and um so and and my real strengths so are all sort of derived from um the sports sort of sporting world so i hope I hope it's made me a good person
0: and i think I think the interesting thing is is that for whatever reason there's a lot of negativity about elite sport you know however you want to however you want to couch it, but there's also you've mentioned the word privilege, you've mentioned the word you know alignment and connection with a group of people that just like business is going to hopefully get to you get you your end goal, whether it be winning an Olympic medal or whether it be you know becoming a a worldwide apparel brand. I think the the similarities are actually really, really stark when it comes to that. Final point, or final question. What advice would you give to a an athlete who was currently performing in their sport and if they came to you and said, look, I'm looking to transition to life after sport in the next five years, what advice do you reckon you'd give them?
1: A couple of things. Uh, enjoy what you're doing at the moment as an athlete because um, it's one of the best jobs you'll ever have. So just make sure that you've got the headspace to just enjoy what you're doing. Um, and then uh, yeah, have confidence that, the skill sets that you're developing in your sport are going to be really valuable and transferable to later on, but make sure that you're having plenty of conversations with people in the outside world um, and and do that intentionally with sort of some kind of energy to, one, work out what you want to do, um, two, to build some good networks, and um and you'll find a lot of answers within those conversations and so there's no right perfect answer in terms of what you will want to go and do later on in life and what are the you know it's the clear steps but the the quickest way to getting the right sort of you know pathway is to talk to a lot of people and um and the, the great thing is with uh, being an athlete you know, a lot of people have coffee with you you know they'll enjoy listening to your story and and then they'll share a little bit back in terms of what they do. And so um you should be able to sort of you know fill out a nice sort of calendar every week and and almost sort of make that as a bit of a practice of just trying to tap into sort of different people to figure out stuff so um yeah i think that's sort of the the key thing